Welcome to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, presented by Easton's new Ultra Micro Diameter Injection Arrows. Injection utilizes the new Deep Six standard for more big game penetration than ever before. Learn more about the injection today at www.eastonarchery.com. Now here's your host of Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, editor Christian Byrne. Welcome back to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio. We are the voice of bowhunting, and as always, we're glad that you've taken some time to be with us today and celebrate this great sport. I am sitting here on October the 30th, one day from Halloween. Uh, The rut is really kicking in, or at least uh, what we'll call the hunter's rut, the pre-rut, the chase phase, the bucks and are getting on their feet and harassing does and so one of my very favorite times of the year and today we're going to talk about uh, whitetail hunting and other things from the world of whitetails with none other than Dr. Grant Woods uh, who is now our new whitetails columnist here at Peterson's Bowhunting in addition to being the purveyor of growingdeer.tv. Grant, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Christian. I appreciate the opportunity. Well, listen, man, uh, for those who, who might not have seen it yet, you just started up as our Whitetails columnist here at Peterson's Bowhunting. We had a couple changes on the staff. I had an opportunity to bring you in kind of unexpectedly. We had been talking for a couple of years just about the possibility of maybe doing some work together someday, and it came together, so just wanted to officially welcome you aboard and say that uh i'm excited about it it's been it's been nice you know sharing whitetail related thoughts with you over the last couple of years and it's a it's a pleasure and an honor to have you on the peterson's bow hunting team well and likewise i'm thrilled to be with the team obviously some real solid guys in that lineup so uh i'm gosh i'm humbled and honored to be part of them well i know that uh I know that your your columns are going to be well received by our readers, and uh, we can all look forward to your timely thoughts on the latest developments from the whitetail world every month, and uh, that's going to be great. There's an awful lot going on right now. Uh, as I said, you know, uh, basically the best couple two two three hunting weeks of the year right here upon us. But before we even get to that. And I know you've been out doing a lot of hunting, but a couple interesting things that have happened leading up to the hunting season this year, not the least of which was the big outbreak of uh, epizootic hemorrhagic disease, or EHD, that struck you know pretty much the core of the, the whitetail range throughout the Midwest and, and down into the south and even out into the, the west a little bit. Grant, what uh, what's your sense of the kind of toll that, that whitetails suffered this year at the hands of EHD? Certainly the largest outbreak in my career. I've been a practicing biologist 22 years, and I've never seen anything like this. I used to, when I was in graduate school, did some stuff with the disease unit there at Georgia, and they were the guys that discovered EHD and really have tracked it for about 55 years, and no one has ever reported or seen the amount of of death over such a large-scale area as we saw this year. And that's really pretty easy to understand. EHD is, of course, caused by a virus. It's a virus. There's several different types of that virus, and some of them are more potent than others. And it's transmitted from one deer to another by biting flies or, or what we call midges. Some people call them noceums, depending on what part of the world you're hunting in. And so when it's really dry, most deer gather around the limited water sources, 
and those water sources are probably low because it is a drought, so there's a lot of mud or dirt showing, and that makes a great breeding environment for these midges. So we had a really warm winter last year that let a few more insects survive the winter. Really dry, record drought in a lot of states this summer. Drove deer to those limited water sources, and it was easy for those midges to go deer to deer to deer. Mm-hmm. And, and it really... Uh... Uh, just affected a just a tremendously wide area too. Uh, oh my gosh! Yeah, from from literally from Montana to Florida, and almost every single state in between. And and in most states, there'd be areas that were a little hotter or had a higher uh, rate of outbreak than in other areas. For example, I live in Missouri, and in southern I live in southern Missouri. Most of you guys that are listening probably go to northern Missouri to chase those big corn-fed bucks. But I live in southern Missouri, and. And we had some EHD here. I found a couple of bucks on my place, uh, but I don't think it was you know more than ten or eleven percent of the herd. In northern Missouri, the state vet, the state veterinarian for the for the state of Missouri has has went on record saying that in areas they lost fifty percent of the population. You know that's that's pretty drastic, fifty percent. So what does that do, both short term and long term? If you're in an area that has a an impact uh, on the local deer population, that 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 is that high obviously that's a pretty significant blow for your immediate hunting uh what about two three five years out is that something that really sets a, a whitetail herd back for a long time no you know it's kind of a good news bad news story the, the thing about ehd unlike cwd cwd is always fatal once a gear did gets contacts that disease that's dead CWD has a couple of forms. There's acute, which usually the deer dies in 24 to 48 hours, and chronic. In chronic, the deer will get sick, and, and one of the lesions or symptoms will be at a slough part of its hooves off. You see it, and you go, my gosh, there's things like busting off its hooves. Those deer usually survive, and now they have antibodies, or they are resistant to EHD in the future, and their offspring may be resistant also. So in areas that really took it hard, they almost have a vaccine so to speak those deer a lot of the deer were bitten and survived and now they're not going to be susceptible in their lifetime to another significant ehd outbreak and deer herds healthy deer herds can increase by about 30 percent a year so if you lost 50 percent you know in, in a year and a half two years you're back up where you were the problem is for those guys that like to chase bucks with bigger antlers you can't replace the age structure that quick so if you lost you know, X percent of the mature bucks in your area, you're five, six years out from replacing that. Right. Yeah, I know that that's something that, uh, you know, I'm leaving for Illinois on Saturday. I'm going out Mm -hmm. for for my annual rut hunt, and the outfitter out there who I hunt with, he was real concerned because EHD was pretty prevalent in, in his area, and he was, he was concerned that it had taken a big toll. Now that He's had some people hunting. They're seeing a lot of deer, um, but we do know that there were several, you know, really nice mature bucks that were found in that area that had died as a result of the disease. So, like you said, it's it. I don't think it's devastated the deer population, but some of those individuals that are removed from the herd, there's nothing you can do about that, and it's just a shame. Yeah, it's just a matter of time. You know, you're taught as a biologist that we care for individuals like humans you know we care for our kids or our parents whatever but we manage populations so in in wildlife we often are guilty of talking about num big numbers or populations or percentages but if you're the guy that's got 160 acres out there and you've 
you know, been passing up bucks, maybe playing a food plot or two, and you've got a four and a half year old buck, you've been waiting literally four years to, to produce there, and all of a sudden it's floating in your pond. You're not worried about managing populations at that point. You're sad over that individual. Mm-hmm. So, so let's spin it forward a little bit more big picture now for, for you and I and all of the other whitetail enthusiasts who are listening. Now we're going out to hunt. Should we alter our expectations? Uh, what are we going to be seeing this year in terms of the number of bucks, the number of older bucks, or rutting activity? Does EHD play into that at all, uh, depending on well, where it- we're hunting? It, it can and it can't. Yeah, that's right. It's really, you hit the nail on the head there to the last. It's site-specific. So there, there are some counties in Michigan and then out in Nebraska and South Dakota where those deer herds just took a pounding by EHC. As a matter of fact, in Nebraska and South Dakota, the state has voted to either limit the amount of deer tags or buy back deer tags they've already given out. I mean, they want to reduce the harvest. And I think that's the appropriate thing in those areas that really, really just took it hard. In other areas where maybe you lost 5 or 10% of your herd, I think that's going to limit itself. You know, hunters are not going to see quite as many deer to make you a little bored or to make you go somewhere else to hunt or something. It just kind of takes care of itself. So I think common sense has always got to prevail. If you're in an area and you're just not seeing deer sign, not based on one day's hunt, but, boy, you're not seeing it, the farmers aren't reporting seeing deer, or, or you know that a lot of a lot of deer died of EHD in that area, you certainly want to back off your doe harvest in that area. And and if you see a four or five year old buck, gosh, you might as well take him because the chances of survival are getting pretty slim anyway. Uh, but yeah, there's some areas I'm sure where guys were had a little hidey ho or a great hunting spot, and there's not many mature bucks left in that area for a year or two now. Mm. Well, something else I wanted to touch on. Uh, unfortunately, another sort of bad news kind of situation is uh, CWD, which uh, was just. Uh, identified here in Pennsylvania uh, on a captive farm, but now I'm hearing reports that there may have been some escapees from some of these facilities that are linked to the infected facility. I also heard that there may have been some does from this farm in Pennsylvania that were sent to a deer farm in Indiana, and of course we all know how these things go, and it it doesn't take that long to start connecting the dots and see where you you can start moving uh illnesses around uh pretty quickly but uh what's the uh what's sort of the near term and long term on on cwd I, I may be a bit of a contrarian grant because on the one hand i know that it's bad like you said any deer that gets it is going to die and yet at the same time i look at the history of cwd out west where it was first identified i think colorado is where they first uh, sort of pinned it down back in the 60s, and I see lots of good deer hunting in Colorado to this day. So how, how bad is CWD really, and how much should I be worried about it as a deer hunter? Okay, I want to do one thing. There's a, there's a great website that's not biased, not advertising thing. It's just really a, a, a dumping place where all current CWD research is posted. And it's sponsored by a bunch of just nonprofit organizations that put money up for this science side, Boone and Crockett and Pope and Young and Quality Deer Management and a bunch of state agencies, whatever. And I just like to share that website if that's okay, because guys can really see what's the most current research on CWD and what's going on in their state. Is that, would it be okay if I share that website? Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, it's where I go to get not the gossip, but the real stuff on CWD. It's cwd-info.org, O-R-G cwd-info.org. Um, 
CWD is serious, and and as a as a wildlife biologist that's a practicing biologist, I'm not a microbiologist or or pathologist or disease specialist. So I really learn from some of my fellow colleagues that are in that world. But CWD is spreading, and when you have a disease like that that you just don't know much about, it's really dangerous to be moving animals around. You know, the whitetail resource, besides being my passion, I mean, you know, my, my kids are named after deer, Lily Raleigh, my daughter, Raleigh's old English for dweller by the deer meadow, and Ray, R-A-E, is Hebrew for doe. I mean, deer just are a huge factor in my life, in my life. And, and to think about something that could significantly reduce or deplete whitetail populations in the next 20 years or so is something I want to take serious. So it is something we need to take serious. The problem is we just don't know a lot about that disease. It's, it's like viruses. You know, when you get a cold, if it's a bacteria, you can get an antibiotic and knock it out. If it's a virus, you just have to let it run its course. Well, CWD is kind of like that virus. It's not a virus, but it's, kind of, it's closer to that than a bacteria. And we don't even know how to destroy it. You know, we can cook it for 600 degrees for an hour, and that doesn't kill it. Uh, there's a lot of real mystical things about CWD. We do know that once it's in an area, we have not been able to get rid of it. So I just got to tell you, uh, I'm totally opposed to moving deer. I, I think it people moving deer uh, just for their own personal gain, not for the betterment of species or something, is endangering something that millions and millions of us enjoy and one of the largest economic factors in the United States. Literally, hunting is number 19 on the Fortune 100 worldwide. So we're, we're really playing with gas and dynamite when we move deer around. And that's unpopular for some people, but we need to speak loudly on this and tell the truth before it's too late. Second, yes, there are areas where CWD, unknown reason, seems to just be incubating or, or not getting bad, like you talk about a few parts of Colorado. But we go right north of there in Wyoming, and there's one really large management unit, guys larger than some eastern states, and the mule deer population has decreased by over 50%, even though they've been re reducing the number of tags almost every year in there. Hunters aren't killing them. I'm sure predation is a little bit of a factor there. But CWD, and they're testing, and there's a very high prevalence rate of deer with CWD. Very, very high. That could happen other places. So you think about, you know, Pennsylvania or Missouri losing 50% of its deer to a disease, and that means... The, the carrier that caused that disease, the prions, are in the soil everywhere. There's really not much hope for that deer herd. It's going to continue. So some states don't test at all. You know, so states that say, well, we don't have any CWD, they don't know because they don't test. How would you know if you don't test? Mm. And, and that's been, <coughs> pardon me, common. More and more states are testing. I'm a big proponent of what I call surveillance testing or not just going out at random and shooting thousands of deer on guys' property that want to hunt or, you know, put a food plot out or maybe build a pond or whatever. But hunters are really good at reporting sick deer or deer that don't look normal or, or harvesting deer that looks really gay. And those are where we need to spend the limited dollars we have for this monitoring. Test those deer. Mm -hmm. Don't just test every deer you see or 50% of the deer that hunters harvest in a county. Test a deer that have some indication of CWD. And then I don't think we can ignore this. It's it's kind of like profiling. I'm, I'm getting real political here. I don't know why, but, you know, <laughs> we spend all this time stripping down and searching Granny, and she's going through the, the airport TSA mm -hmm. while I'm waiting to go hunting somewhere. 
and yet we let three young guys that potentially look like terrorists go by without, you know, we can't profile. Goodness sakes, we don't want to offend anybody. Well, it's kind of that way with deer, too. And we know that there's a huge, huge relation of captive breeding facilities that ship deer, not just high fences. I mean, gosh, there's high fences all over Texas. High fences that actively transport deer. They ship them, they buy them, they move them, they sell them, whatever, and CWD. There's a there's an undeniable relationship there. But it's like it's not politically correct for anyone to say that out loud. So, yeah, I'll go on record and say, gosh, you know what? I love deer passionately, and I'm not sure that market is worth potentially destroying the free-ranging hunting market that's that drives a lot of our economy in America. Well, you know, so are you basically saying that you're proposing, a, you know, a, an outright elimination of captive uh, whitetail breeding facilities, you know? Specific- no, not, not, not captive facilities. I mean, there, there are people that I have known or know that have a, you know, a family farm, 500,000, 3,000 acres, whatever. They're in an area where everyone shoots every deer that moves. So for them, that family to enjoy rubs and scrapes and rattling and things that come with an older age structure, they almost have to put a fence up to, to get deer to older age classes. It's the deer that were in the neighborhood already. What I'm really opposed to is shipping deer across state lines or auction houses. There's auction houses that sell nothing but white-tailed deer, just like you'd sell cows. Mm-hmm. But the vet requirements and the health checks are not near as stringent as our, you know, as our cattle industry. No, it's and, all, and it's all pretty difficult to enforce anyway. Very difficult. And there is a huge amount of, anytime there's money involved, there's people going to try to find a shortcut. That's just a fact of our nature. And so there's a huge amount of people with RVs, and you, but once you get inside the RV, it's a bunch of stalls that are shipping deer illegally across state lines at night. Mm. There's been cases made on this uh, recently and, and historically, too. So, you know, moving these deer, black market deer at night is dangerous, dangerous to a huge recreation base and a huge economic base in our nation. You talked about the fact that we don't know a whole lot about CWD itself as a disease. Uh, I think it's also fair to say that as a management community, you know, uh, the the state agencies, the, the, the federal, you know, U.S. Fish and Wildlife, what have you, um, don't really have a, a great plan on how to address it once it is found either because if you look at you know different things that have been in variety of states you know wisconsin of course most notably had tried to literally uh, wipe deer out within their cwd area and that kind of just fell flat because at some point you know the hunters refused to stop helping with it and it became impossible to do anyway um, other states, as you said, that don't really do anything or take more of a hands-off approach, it doesn't seem like no matter what's been tried, that it, like you said, it hasn't, it hasn't eliminated the disease or even really stopped the spread of it. And, uh, you know, where does that leave us? Well, you're exactly right. And that's why I have proposed, there's only, there's a limited budget for anything wildlife, especially right now in the current state of our economy. So... Let's spend our dollars in two places. Let's do targeted surveillance. Someone in any state says, man, there's a deer at my pond. It's heads down. It's droopy. Let's send someone out to collect a sample off that. Let's just don't drive around at night spotlighting deer off private land under the guise of sampling for CWD because if the occurrence rate is about one in a million, 
then you got to shoot a million deer before you get a positive. That's obviously not going to work very good. It's not good for the citizens or the state agency's budget. So let's do two things. Let's do targeted surveillance, and then let's spend the money that we're, some states are currently spending on just you know broad-based sampling on research. Let's learn more about CWD because right now, I know in, in Missouri, CWD was found in the last couple of years, Oddly enough, right next to some captive facilities, once again, I mean, it just always shows up next to these captive facilities. And so now, in a six-county area around those facilities, they're encouraging everyone to shoot all the bucks because bucks tend to move and disperse more, so they have a, a higher likelihood of transmitting CWD to other deer herds, other areas. And no one can put, like, corn out in front of even a truck. I'm not talking about hunting over just do a camera survey or put a mineral lick out or anything like that. So really impacted everyone's recreation due to some carelessness of some apparently careless high-fence guys. But anyway. Yeah, well, that, of, that's, I mean, not to go off on a tangent, but that is an important point. I mean, you know, here in Pennsylvania, some of the things that they're talking about uh, include, you know, a statewide ban on deer feeding, a statewide ban on using minerals because it concentrates deer at the mineral site, and a statewide ban on the use of any urine-based uh, deer attractants because the urine yep, from yep. those and deer, if they're infected with CWD, you could be putting, you could be taking a clean area and putting CWD prions into that soil. So this is something that has uh, a real uh, chance to impact every deer hunter, even if you don't have CWD in an area where you live. You know, the, not even being able to take a, a bottle of Tink 69 out into the woods with you anymore. That's exactly right. It's far, far-reaching ramifications, so I think we need to be serious about this quickly and not just sit around, but, you know, we have to acknowledge we have a limited budget. We need to be smart about it, and, you know, I enjoy getting trail camera pictures of deer using my trophy rocks. I mean, it's just, you know, in the summertime, I want to see what bucks are out there, and just putting them on a trail is pretty hit or miss, but you can, certainly bucks do concentrate around mineral in the summer. Mm-hmm. But, you know, deer, if you watch deer, I make a living studying deer, they lick, they groom, they do a lot of stuff, no matter if there's an attractant out there or not. Certainly attractants concentrate them more. But they're going to groom. CWD, CWD is going to spread. And I'll take you back to this population in Wyoming where there's a very high prevalence rate of CWD and herds drop by 50% in an area that's predominantly public land, and there's no feeding going on there. Mm-hmm. Those deer have been passing it deer to deer or... There's also theories that an infected deer gets bit by a nip by a coyote or a predator or whatever, and then that coyote bites another deer. Or, you know, there's a lot of ways this can pass. And the, the real dangerous thing is these these prions. Once they're in the dirt, let's say a deer just dies of CWD, dies a natural death of CWD, and it decomposes in the dirt. There, no one knows but God that that deer died. Mm-hmm. Those prions are there, and another deer comes up and licks those old bones as a source of mineral, which is really common. Deer do that frequently. Mm. It's, it's most likely going to become in, infected now. So once it's in an area, we have not found a way to, to rid that area. Using incinerators or all this kind of stuff, we have not found a way to get it out of an area. And I suspect, and a lot of biologists do too, I doubt they'd go on record. I'll go on record saying, I suspect CWD is probably in every state in America or in most states in America. Again, if you don't test, you don't know. Yeah. Well, it. Uh, I mean, I agree with you as far as putting the money into research because 
based on everything that I can tell, and I've been following this for a long time, for, uh, you know, before I was here at the magazine, I was doing full-time outdoor writing for six years, covering sure. it all over the country, and like you said, the best thing that I think we have in terms of a hope at this point is to learn more about it and find a way to uh, neutralize it or treat it more so than just trying to find out exactly where it is and drawing lines on maps and telling people to go to check stations and give samples because uh, you can have all that information and it still brings us right back to where we are today, which is like, okay, we know, you know, it's here or there or wherever. And now what do we do? We still don't know what to do. That's right. You know, in different states are handling differently. I mean, most, a lot of people I don't think realize that Illinois has had CWD for years in a few northern counties, and they, they bait and shoot, which makes a lot of people mad. They, in those areas, they're trying to limit it to those areas. So they, they, the state agency goes out and baits deer up and, and shoots them and does sampling, and they've drastically reduced that deer population in those counties. Now, if you're a hunter that owns land or hunts in that county, you hate it. You hate that program passionately. If you're a hunter in the next county and you feel that's keeping CBD from spreading to your county, you love it. Mm-hmm. And it's just like everything in life. It depends on how we're impacted. So I live in southern Missouri. These regulations that have been put in place in northern Missouri really aren't impacting me. But I have several friends that own land in those counties, and they've spent years passing up young bucks just on their family farms. They're not outfitters. They're just guys with 80 or 120 acres, or they got together two or three buddies and put together 1,000 acres total, you know, mm-hmm. cooperative-type deal. And all of a sudden, it goes from people passing up bucks and harvesting does and, you know, putting out mineral, trying to help deer, whatever, to no mineral, no bait, no supplement whatsoever, and shoot every yearling buck you see. Well, you know, guys, those guys are just heartbroken, and I understand why. Mm-hmm. Well, it's some pretty, two pretty heavy issues, and uh, unlike CWD, which, as we discussed, is, is ongoing and, you know, again, once it's found in an area, it's probably going to be prevalent there on an ongoing basis. At least the good news on the EHD side of things is that uh, looks like those outbreaks are more or less over, you know, at least in more northern locations because uh, as soon as you get a good frost or two, most of those midges are going to be wiped out and, and yes. you're going to basically have the virus uh, eliminated from those areas until we get another hot, dry summer and those bugs move back into the area. So That's right. And, and, you know, we, we've known about EHD for 55 years, I think 56 this year actually. We know it can be pretty damaging, but deer herds bounce back. And, you know, it, it's, 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 it's a shame, but it's nothing I'm really concerned over. Well, DWD is something I'm concerned about. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's kind of spend the last segment of the show today on a bit more positive note and, and talk some red awning. Um, I know that you've been already on the road quite a bit. You, you've got a few uh, whitetail trips under your belt, and I'm sure that you're really ramping up uh, for the rut at the Proving Grounds, your property there in Missouri. Let's talk a little bit about rut hunting tactics, specifically over these next two to three weeks, uh, the kind of behaviors you anticipate to see, and uh, some things that uh, our fellow hunters might do uh, a bit aggressively to take advantage of uh, this window of opportunity that we've got. Yeah, I agree 100%. You know, I, I just returned from Kentucky, and we've already hunted a little bit once we returned home here in Missouri. And what we're seeing right now, the same behavior in both those states, eight hours apart, the hunting spots. 
is this last cold front that came through about a week ago put the mature deer on their feet, mature bucks, and they're scraping really hard right now. They're, they're taking scrapes. And, and unfortunately, a lot of guys, by the time they find a scrape, that baby's dead or, or not very active anymore. So what will happen is mature bucks have mainly been nocturnal once they go out of velvet, you know, they're not moving much or eating and sleeping and doing that at night. They get a, and the, the day length gets shorter, and so a gland changes in their body and secretes a different hormone. And, but that's like a threshold. Everyone thinks that day the deer changed behavior. That's not true. And then it takes apparently some other trigger to really get them on their feet. And what I've always seen in other researchers is nothing like a 10 or 20 degrees drop in temperature does that. And that's all we had. And so we actually videoed some mature bucks the other day. I had a three-year-old buck 10 yards in the scrape, and, and it's on a good property, so I opted to pass him mm-hmm. just because I knew there were better deer around. Beautiful big-bodied deer 10 yards away, just the leaves were, you know, the color was beautiful. I think we watched five different bucks in that scrape over two and a half days. Mm. And some of them multiple times, you know, coming back. Those scrapes are just like the old phone booths for those guys that are old enough to, to you know, pre-cell phone days when we all had to use a phone booth, I had a calling card or something. Scrapes do not mark territory at all. That's that's wrong. Scrapes are just a communication post, and a deer will go by and leave it sit and say, hey, I'm healthy, I'm fit. Would you like to get together? Or I'm in the neighborhood. I'm in the area. Whatever. They're not marking territory. So, and then as soon as I've just a few does start becoming receptive, the big bucks are not wasting their time on a scrape. They're going right for the date. Mm-hmm. They're going to be cruising and going for a date. And if your stand is on a scrape, you know maybe coming out of a transition area from a bedding area to a feeding area or something, you could be a lonely hunter because those bucks are are moving far and wide trying to trying to find a receptive doe. Mm-hmm. So right now, last week, and maybe I'm going to say two or three more days from right now or so, great scrape hunting if you're on the right scrape. Uh, youth weekend is this weekend here in Missouri, uh, and I will have my kids uh, watching feeding areas because I'm starting to see on my trail cameras mature bucks checking out these feeding areas, checking does. And, 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 it, and I haven't seen any doe really stand or, or even allowed a chase to be good they're running the heck they're getting the heck out of there they don't want anything to do with the bucks yet here at my place mm-hmm. but it's just a day or two from changing so we will be hunting feeding areas uh knowing where does are coming knowing that the bucks will typically be on the downwind side of that sitting checking those does so so that would be a real tactic that would be a little bit different than what we typically think of you know normally i'm hearing you say feeding areas so i'm thinking you know field edges on ag fields or food plots and typically i would want to hunt those more of an evening location okay Uh, you're saying that as we head into the next week here that's an area that you're going to be sitting more of an all-day kind of proposition yeah i'll hunt hunt two daughters i hunt one in the morning one in the afternoon we will both be within view we may not be on a food plot but we'll be within view of a food plot, typically on the downwind side, trying to catch a buck, you know, scent checking that area. Uh, the, the, the yearling bucks are just on their feet like crazy. We rattled in, guys, just wads the yearling bucks. And I, I like to, if we can take a little side there, you know, a lot of guys love rattling. I love rattling. I love watching deer respond. But you got to know that the most common buck that's going to respond when you beat your antlers together is a yearling buck. He's curious. He'll come in. You can see him. Um, Mature bucks typically won't waste time. Certainly people rattle in and kill mature bucks, but that's a low percentage game. Hmm. I, I do rattle, but I'm going to use my grunt call. I'm going to say 20 times more than I rattle. 
and, and the research and, and my observation is pretty much the same as grunts. And You know, if you see deer 50 yards away and you blow on your grunt call like a tuba, you're going to blow them out of there because they're going to know. They're going to look over there and say, well, I don't see a deer and I heard a grunt. Something's not right. I'm leaving. But if mid-morning <coughs> or even early morning, I'll look and look and look and make sure there's no deer within view of me. And I'll hit that grunt call. I'll blind call. And this is the perfect time of year to be doing that because there's not a lot of does receptive right now in most areas. And if a buck hears a grunt, he thinks there's a receptive doe over there. He's coming, especially a mature buck. He wants to get on that trail. He wants to see who's 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 got a date and if he can take it over. Mm-hmm. Right now is prime time to be grunting. And so how long is that going to last? You know, I'm, I will grunt from now all the way through to this chase, seek and chase phase and, and even in the lockdown phase because, you know, lockdown phase can can actually be a little bit boring when when the most does are receptive. Well, you know, a buck gets with a doe, he's going to stay with her 24, 36 hours and then leave her and go try to find another. And, and it may take him an hour or less to find another doe. So your chances of, of getting on a mature buck during that lockdown phase are pretty slim. He's got to be in the right place at the right time when he's seeking another doe. Now, what do you put as the transition between... Um, you know, chasing and seeking and lockdown. Are you uh, are you a big believer in particular research that gives you sort of a, a date certain as to when most does are going to be bred? Yeah, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm, I'm certainly. Uh, let me go on record and say this unequivocally. Certainly not. Not an opinion based on a huge amount of data. Know that the moon does not impact when deer breed. That just made a lot of people mad. There is. We've looked at yeah, literally... Yeah, half, half, half the listeners are mad at you now, Grant. Yeah. Congratulations. Looked, Thanks. Thanks for making my audience mad. We <laughs> looked at about 10,000 conception dates. I want you to understand that number. 10,000 fetuses pulled out a late-season harvested dose. So we could backdate the when they're bred, just like when your wife goes and has an ultrasound and the doctor measures crown to rump of that little baby in, in the mommy and says, okay, you know, you're going to be born here. To, you can expect the baby to be born here. Well, you can also backdate, and the same thing with deer. So we backdate when the breeding occurred. And we, several of us got together and pulled all of our data, several researchers from many different states, north, south, east, west, from different years, not just one year. And there was unequivocally zero relationship with any phase, declination, brightness, anything to do with the moon, period. Deer breed every year almost the same dates in the same area within a few days it doesn't shift two weeks based on the moon from one year to the next there is zero data to support that period and what about weather you get a lot of guys saying if it's cold early you know the ruts early this year what do they mean yeah what's that all well about? i think what they're saying is they're seeing deer on the hoof they're seeing deer up and feeling good and chasing and feeling frisky the breeding doesn't change year in year out the rain the average conception dates in an area will be the same now, you can shift that. I had a project in northern New York that we shifted the median or the mean, the average conception date or breeding date by over 30 days by changing the adult sex ratio. But it took about 10 years to do that. Mm. You don't, you just don't change it overnight. So I hear November 7th thrown out a lot for... Bill Winkie's a huge fan, good yeah. friend of mine. Bill Winkie, huge fan of November 7th. You know, that's, that's prime time in the Midwest, but is he better than the 6th, 5th, or 4th? No, I don't think so. <laughs> and, uh, I, I think I think Bill's probably been successful, and Bill's a great hunter. Uh, you know, killing some deer on those dates, but you know that's certainly prime time. But is there any magic to the seventh versus the sixth or eighth? I don't think so. 
So you like to do, you'll do some some blind grunting, and you like to set up uh, on or close to food sources, obviously because those are areas that does tend to visit, and that's why the bucks are going to be there. What uh, what else do you do? Do you do uh, you use a lot of scent? in your hunting setups and what, what... I, I don't i want to be as scent free as i can because uh, a, a lot of scents uh you know just tend to alert deer that it, it makes them you know once a deer catches a scent whether it's true doe do urine or not doe urine or whatever they're going to be on high alert and they've got a better chance of picking me off so, so, you're, I'm so, not, you, so I'm, you don't use an estrus <laughs> doe urine or anything like that i don't do you think do you think they're effective or no? You know, certainly, certainly, guys have harvested big bucks over that, and certainly, guys have spooked deer with that. When I was a graduate student at the University of Georgia, they were spending literally hundreds of thousands trying to research that, and I got to tell you, they could never figure out. Now, this wasn't someone trying to make money. This was just you know, university spending money as a researcher with really high dollar equipment, breeding barns, high dollar equipment, all the free graduate student labor they could get, and they could never figure out what magic chemical compound in doe urine would drive bucks crazy. I'll give you just one example. We would pull urine out of does via a catheter, via a tube down in their bladder that we knew chemically and with a neutered buck was in heat. The neutered buck would about kill you getting to this doe. There's no doubt she was in heat. We'd pull that out via catheter, put it in front of bucks with a, beside a beaker of water, and there was no different in reaction. We would catch urine that came out of the doe and trickled down her fanny, so to speak, and the buck would tear the barn down getting to it. Mm. There's a reaction there, a ba- probably a bacterial reaction, that, mm-hmm. that, that causes a gas to form. So let's just take one other quick thing. I think a lot of your audience will relate to this. Probably, probably everyone has watched the doe go through and understand during the rut or something, and a buck usually comes at 90 degrees. Bucks are going to be going, you know, perpendicular to where most does are moving during the seeking phase, trying to cut as many trails as they can. And a buck will hit that doe trail, and he'll take a step or two to the right and a step or two to the left, and then he always goes the way that you saw the deer go. I've never talked to anyone who saw the buck go the other way. What's that telling you? Well, it tells me as a scientist, that scent is so volatile that within a few steps, he could tell what was older and what was fresher. Mm. Just within a couple of steps. Mm-hmm. Think about something sitting on the shelf for a month or five months or whatever. Yeah. Well, it. Uh, now, there given are, that, there are people you know, who are swear by it, and heck, we've all experimented with it, and we've all had some good luck with it at times. Absolutely, you know? and you know, it's I relate it to just like this because I agree with you. People have had success with it. You know, pre when when the hens aren't ready to breed yet, when you're spring turkey hunting. If you drop your box call and it makes a squeaky sound, every gobbler in the woods will gobble and come to you <laughs> early on. You know, well, yeah. if if you've got to sit out there and not many does are receptive yet, or you've made you've got it out and a buck just left two or three receptive does and he's now cruising trying to find another and he's all jacked up and geared up, then yeah, it might bring him right in. It, but it also got a chance of him smelling something artificial or something not quite right and going the other way. I. I made a mock scrape there. I'm a huge believer in scrapes. I make mock scrapes all the time. Uh, it's a visual thing. It can draw deer in from being 50 yards out to 10 yards out so you can get a shot. I think mock scrapes are tremendous tools. And do you put scent in them or you just clear the dirt? I urinate them. Okay, with your own Grant Woods bladder. Grant Woods, yeah, it's free that way. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> all, all urine, all mammal urine starts breaking down to ammonia really quick within within just a couple of minutes, literally. 
Well, I do the so. same thing, but that that is another thing to hit on real quick is I'm not a pee bottle man, and I'm going to take it that you're not either. If I'm on stand no. and I have to go, I go. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and, and I can't, you know, we're in the video business, and we, just this last week, uh, my cameraman did that a couple of times. Sound like a doggone hurricane was coming through, to tell you the truth. And we videoed, like I said, numerous good bucks at this great 10 yards away. Yeah, I've never seen a negative reaction to human urine, but uh, I know there's other people that will disagree with me, and uh, they swear you have to carry your pee in and out of the woods, but that's that's fine for them. I'm not going to carry my pee around in my backpack. So, sorry. No, you know, it, and, and people are really successful. That's one of the great things about whitetail. Like, I have a friend that's a great spot and stock hunter in, in a hardwood forest, not out west where he's using binoculars and seeing, you know, X thousand yards. He is. He does not believe in tree stands. He kills mature deer off the ground, walking up to them in their bed and shooting them with a bow. Period. Mm. I, I I have no skill at doing that. I could not do that. I'm you know I'm okay out of a tree stand. I, my game is figuring out where deer are going to be, getting in that area without disturbing deer. Mm. Other guys are are call masters. I mean they're really good at calling. I mean you know all the all those techniques are are good and valid. And we all have different skill sets. That's why some guys are tight ends and some guys are quarterbacks and some guys are linemen. And, and my skill set is reading the land, reading the area, figuring out where bucks are going to be, and then sliding in there without disturbing the area. What about decoying? You do any of that, Grant? I do some. I do some more for fun. I I'm probably can kill as many deer without a decoy or maybe more, but it sure is fun to watch bucks respond to a decoy. And is there a time specifically that's most conducive I, I, to that? Yeah, I think right now is prime time to decoy. Right, right now, the bucks, right now the bucks are really wanting to dance throughout most of the whitetails range. Obviously, not all of it. You know, in the Black Belt in Alabama, guys, they still got fawns with spots on them. And South Florida rut was in July. It's over in South Florida. But for most of us in most of the whitetails range, bucks are all geared up and wanting to go to the dance, and the does aren't quite dressed yet. And it's a really fun time to be out in the woods. Like literally today, the next week, because that's going to change really quick. Mm-hmm. Well, it is exciting, and uh, I know you're going to be spending as much time in the stand as you can, and I'm going to be trying to sneak a couple days of hunting here in Pennsylvania. Uh, I'm going to, I'm actually going to miss the last full week of the archery season here while I'm out in Illinois. So I feel a little bit of urgency to try and get it done here, and then hop in the truck and get out to Illinois and and try to do do it again but uh hey it's bow hunting you know the odds are the odds are always not in our favor i guess but we're eternal optimists and if we that's right if we can get in a good area where we know there's some good deer uh that's really all you can ask for and and every once in a while it comes together that's that's it well listen man it it was enjoyable talking to you today i i found it really interesting as i always do when we chat and uh, those CWD and, and EHD topics are are uh, kind of heavy stuff, but uh, good for people to know about. And this rut is uh, is upon us. It's my favorite time of the year, and, and I'm sure it is for a lot of the listeners. I hope that everybody who's listening gets a chance to at least be part of some some hot and heavy action. You know, you don't always kill them, but just to see some bigger deer. Uh, running around, chasing, uh, grunting, uh, breeding. Uh, It's awesome just to be out there and have a chance to be part of it. I wish you the best, Grant, and I am sure that um, for those who are interested, if you check into growingdeer.tv every week, we'll get the complete blow-by-blow on 
what you and your team is putting on the ground. Absolutely. We'll keep you posted. All right, Grant. Well, thanks again. Have a great day, uh, and I'll talk to you again soon, okay? Thank you, Christian. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, presented by Easton's new ultra-micro-diameter injection arrows. For more information, pick up a copy of Peterson's Bowhunting Magazine on newsstands now.